Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. When you grow up in Baltimore and deliver the Afro-American newspaper, you learn of stories which capture the imagination of the reading public. On this show, we tackle a pair of stories that were a part of my youth and give you something to think about. The Lady in the Lake was a mystery that has stuck with me. It's the story of Shirley Parker, who was a bookkeeper, barmaid, and waitress at the Bain Sinks Club in 1969. She turned up missing in April and her body was discovered by workers repairing the lights at the Druid Hill Reservoir. Black October sent a chill through the black neighborhood when spray paint announced it was going to kill drug dealers. Things got dicey when a member of the House of Delegates was gunned down in a garage. You'll hear both stories, but we begin with a travelogue by bike through the city. Sometimes we miss the untold stories of neighborhoods in Baltimore. Kate Drabowski is on the board of Baltimore Heritage. The website chronicles the city's historic buildings and revitalizing neighborhoods. So I'm delighted to be joined by Kate, who's with the Baltimore Heritage. Well, let's begin with this. You know, um, there are a lot of untold stories in the city of Baltimore, and you've tried to chronicle these in the, on your website uh, and talk a little bit about the website and what you're trying to do. Baltimore Heritage, when uh, we all had to go in lockdown for uh, COVID, Baltimore Heritage wanted to continue. We couldn't do our in-person tours anymore, but we knew that we wanted to keep telling stories about Baltimore. I think knowing uh, these interesting stories or these uh, these kind of secret histories is really important to better understand why the city looks like it does. And so Johns Hopkins, um, along with Molly, who um, is part of Baltimore Heritage, they started making videos and they were a huge hit because it turns out that most of us, you know, as we wander through the city, I ride my bike through the city all the time and I pass things and I, I you almost uh, stop seeing things. And when someone stops and says, okay, actually, let me tell you the story of this place. Uh, it enriches your life and it also helps you understand some of the complexities of the city. So uh, these were such a hit that uh, Baltimore Heritage just keeps on making them. I did one with John's about pool number two in Druid Hill Park uh, and talking about the, the, you know, and I think it's one caveat, the five minute histories are often seven, eight or nine minutes, but uh <laughs> learning about racial segregation in that park and not only desegregation, but also what's happened to that space uh, is really interesting and helping people find the really powerful monument there. Um, it, it's, it's just part of, for me, what it means about living in a city and paying attention. Kate, I know a lot of people will go, you know, or are there a lot of untold stories here in Baltimore? And I can tell you that there are. And I guess that's what you're finding out. Yeah. So I got interested in, so in, in my day job, I teach gender, women's and sexuality studies at UMBC. 
And, but I got interested in history from basically from riding my bike around New Orleans, where I lived. I taught at Tulane before I moved to Baltimore. And the thing with a bicycle is you have to pay really close attention. So you don't get hit by a driver or uh, or you don't accidentally hit a pedestrian. So I would go out every day on my bike and I would take pictures. And then when I got home, I would do a little research about a picture and try to figure out like, why does it look this way? Right. Why does the city look this way? Why is the, why is this house being uh, taken over by this plant? Like, who lived here before? What happened? And so just my own curiosity uh, sort of got me started. And I, I have a blog called What I Saw Riding My Bike Around Today that has chronicled a zillion bike rides. And then when I moved to Baltimore, the way I got to know the city was on my bicycle. It's hilly here. So I had to use some gears and get used to it. My first bike ride I took was uh, from UMBC back into Baltimore. And I used Google Maps and it took me on... Um, took me up Fulton Avenue and then take a ride on North. And those are freeways, but I had no idea. And it was July and it was a three speed. I'd never ridden on a hill. If, uh, if people hadn't been selling bottles of water uh, along the way, I'm not sure I would have made it. So uh, when you ride around Baltimore, you see how quickly neighborhoods change. And, uh, and I just wanted to know why. So I got really interested in that through my uh, work in gender and sexuality studies. I was uh, in, really interested in queer histories and how hard it is to tell those stories and how hidden they are because so much of queer life is has happened underground, right? So I worked with some artists at MICA and we had something called the lesbian popcorn cart. And with this cart, we would we did research and we would find stories about uh, queer history in Baltimore, uh, put them on the bags, popcorn bags. And then we did like we did an event where we just stood out on a corner in Waverly um, and hand out popcorn and and talk about these histories because so much gay history has happened in the Waverly Charles Village area. Uh, and through that, I got involved in walking tours with the LGBTQ um, History Committee at Baltimore Heritage. And there are so many stories that you would not know if you did not talk to people. And learn about their stories. So uh, for example, on the tours, we always talk about Wyman Park Dell, which for me is a place that when I, uh, my brief foray as a runner, I would go around a circle down there because it wasn't hilly. Um, But for queer history, that was a cruising ground for gay men. Um, That has been a place where pride celebrations have been organized and happened, right? There's so many other things that happen in that park. So that's sort of how I got interested in this and some of the stories that I want to unearth. Also, once you start uh, finding out these little stories, you realize how many layers of, of history and existence are happening on the same block at the same time. And it helps remind me uh, that my perspective is just one of many. And, and I just want to know more stories. Well, one of the things you recently did was you put on a conference and um, tell the audience what the name of the conference was and why you started it. So uh, the conference is called Be More Historic, and uh, it's an unconference. It's not actually a conference. And what that means is it brings together interested folks, uh, museum professionals, history buffs like myself, students, uh, neighborhood organizers, people who care about history, brings them together and we all decide together on the day of the conference what we want to talk about and we vote and we 
and it just goes from there. So it is unlike other conferences where maybe you go to listen to an expert uh, tell you, you know, read a paper at you that really requires everybody to be part of the conversation. So it's uh, it's a very democratic uh, way of learning from each other. So I wasn't at the original uh, meetings, the original conferences were organized by Johns Hopkins, Nicole King, Eli Poussin, and other folks. Uh, but I came on just a year or two in, and it has been a place where we gather every September to to talk about what matters to us. And uh, some years that's uh, how do we use historic preservation to uh, you know argue against the use of eminent domain to displace Black families, right? So we uh, the work that's been done in Poppleton um, by the Poppleton Now Coalition is something, you know, we all learn from that. Like, how do we use history to make material changes for justice? Or um, there was a really popular session this time for museum professionals and people who work in institutions to talk about how do you reckon with the maybe sometimes kind of ugly histories of your institution while also using the resources of that institution to tell new stories? And how do we, uh, or how do we make sure that our uh, the ways we tell history is that those ways are accessible to more audiences? So what we talk about depends on who's there and and what we want to chat about. But it has become for a lot of us in Baltimore uh, a real home um, where we where we get to talk about really tough stuff, but also have a lot of fun. Well, I can tell you, having grown up in this town. Uh, there are a lot of unknown stories and uh, and rumors and 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 things that I've both experienced and have heard of. I think because Baltimore was this unique city prior to the Civil War, where it had the largest population of free blacks, it made it very unique. And then by the time we get to the fifties, when segregation kicks in, uh, a number of uh, things like the Roland Park Company and others uh, became this unique kind of set of things that happened that people tried to replicate across the country. What have you learned during this process that you were kind of shocked at? Oh, so many things. But I think the uh, one of the tours that I lead as a volunteer for Baltimore Heritage is the Civil Rights Walking Tour in Marble Hill. Um, And in a one mile radius, you are meeting so many of the luminaries of the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement would not have happened were it not for Baltimore and the people who were here. So learning about, say, Lily Mae Jackson and learning about her uh, work with the NAACP, I knew that she had been uh, working with the NAACP for something like 40 years, but I didn't know that she built the largest chapter in the country. I didn't know that uh, she and her daughter Juanita uh, started sort of the first youth movement out of the NAACP that, and that strategy is then reproduced all over the country. So just as segregation strategies are reproduced, resistance strategies are as well. My favorite story on the tour though, is when we stop at uh, uh, what had, what was Thurgood Marshall's um, elementary school. And uh, one of the stories that, that we, tell is that when he was um, young, he used to get in trouble. So the teacher made him sit in the front row. And one of his punishments 
was that he'd have to go to the boiler room and stay there till he memorized the Constitution of the United States. And if there was ever anybody who used the Constitution of the United States, it was Thurgood Marshall. So just thinking about him being like a first grader, and it's just right there, like that's where he lived. And his uncle, who was really involved in organizing with um, railroad workers, you know, Uncle Fee is just like a few blocks up that way. Just thinking about those folks and overlapping and and the work that they did and just what an inspiration uh, they've been. That's probably my favorite tour that we lead or that I lead anyway. Well, that neighborhood, uh, Marble Hill is part of the Druid Hill neighborhood. Uh, and what always, when I was a young kid was uh, it was the only YMCA I could go to uh, mm-hmm. in the city, the Druid Hill Y. And then of course there were a number of churches that are, literally world famous that are in world that famous yeah. and, and I, i'd like to ask you what should people know about the city because i think a lot of times we look at an urban area and we think of well it's just a series of neighborhoods um i think the thing that always gets to me each one of these neighborhoods has a unique story mm-hmm. And why 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 is that important in the makeup of a city like Baltimore? Well, I think learning about the history of different neighborhoods, you can better understand some of the contemporary conflicts and uh, ways that injustice still operates in Baltimore City. So I'm thinking about a neighborhood like Hamden, which was originally a mill town, and the mill owners only hired native-born white people, so not even recent white immigrants. And that history of who was allowed to live there still structures who lives in Hamden today. And the geographical, uh, like Hamden is sort of cut off from other neighborhoods by Wyman Park and by, um, by the Jones Falls. And so the kind of how are they cut off? And when the rest of the city uh, and the city leadership is sort of shifts to African-Americans, um, what happens to Hamden, right? You've been this like center of racism in the city for so long. And, and now what are the ways that you're sort of have cut off from the rest of the city? Or I live in um, Charles Village. I just live one block uh, west of Greenmount. And I often go for bike rides around Waverly and Charles Village and Roland Park and seeing, say, how there's no way to drive. You cannot cross Greenmount from the east, from the Waverly neighborhood into the west, the the Guilford neighborhood. You cannot cross that with your car from 33rd to 39th. It is, there's no entry. And even for pedestrians, it's not that easy. And that is a, that's there for a reason. And if you cross you know, if you haven't been to Guilford, I mean, I think Westmore has a house there. It's like fancy, right? It looks like <laughs> when I'm there, I I can never believe I'm still in Baltimore. But just on the other side of Greenmount, you don't have the same kind of tree canopy. You don't have the same size houses you have, and you don't have the same uh, group of people. So the neighborhoods are the way they are because other neighborhoods are the way they are, right? So you can't be Guilford without you know, a rich neighborhood without the production of a poor neighborhood, Waverly. So I think you just have to know these histories. And uh, if you want to understand what's happening here. People often ask me, well, why, why Baltimore? 
I said, it has so many unique stories in it. And like you said, from Mount Vernon to over on the east side, where people painted their screens in order to, mm-hmm. to, to, to make. And of course, all of the wonderful churches from uh, Eastern Europe that are there. I, and that's why I really enjoy it. And Kate, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us a little bit about this. Do us a favor, give us your website and how people can follow you. What I saw riding my bike around today.com. I, uh, I try to fit in as many rides as I can. Also, I just want to say really quickly that I have lived in a lot of cities. I'm originally from Idaho. I've lived in uh, New York City, Oakland, Berkeley, uh, Portland, Oregon, Hartford, Connecticut, New Orleans, Louisiana. But Baltimore is where I stay. It is uh, the most interesting city I've ever lived in. And I absolutely think that we should have stuck with the motto, greatest city in America, because it really is. Well, thank you so very much for joining us here on Future City. Thanks, Kate Drabinsky of Baltimore Heritage. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We don't want you to go anywhere. In our next segment, how does a Baltimore waitress end up in the historic fountain at Druid Hill Lake without anyone noticing? Get out your Sherlock Holmes herringbone hat and an oversized spyglass. Let's go digging for some clues. We'll hear this story when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. The story of Shirley Parker, a waitress at the Fane Sphinx Club, went missing in 1969. It has baffled Baltimore for years. Parker's body was found in the Druid Lake Park's Reservoir Light Fixtures. How did she get there? Makita Brotman penned a piece on the Fishbowl website about the mystery. Well, first of all, I am delighted to be joined by uh, Makita Brotman. She wrote a story many, many years ago about a lady in a lake at Druid Hill Park. Nikita, first of all, thank you for joining us here on Future City. Thank you for having me. Well, let's begin with how did this story come to you? Because it's been around for a long time. I can tell you as a paper boy uh, for the Afro-American newspapers, it was one of the titillating stories that many of my uh, readers were always asking me about. Well, what's going on with the lady in the lake? So how did the story come to you? I've always been interested in unsolved crimes and unsolved mysteries. And so I imagine that I was probably looking around for, for one to write about. But this was absolutely fascinating. And I've never, you know, I've never come across such a strange, disturbing story that's almost supernatural. Well, well, let's let's talk about what this story is about. First of all. It's about a bartender, a woman who was known in the community um, at the Sphinx Club, which was a nightclub in Baltimore along Pennsylvania Avenue. Let's talk about the the, the primary individual in this story. Okay, her name was Shirley Parker. She was a 35-year-old African-American woman. And in fact, before, before the crime was, the body was found, she had disappeared five weeks earlier 
And like you said, she was a, a, a barmaid and a waitress. She was a very popular, fashionable lady. She'd been twice divorced. And at the time, she was actually dating and supporting a 33-year-old man named Arno West, who was the main, actually the main suspect in the case. One of the things I thought was fascinating, and uh, you got to understand, if you live here in Baltimore for a while, there are certain things that just catch your attention. First being the Druid Hill Lake. And back in those days, it actually had uh, lights that were color-filled that would change with the season. And all of a sudden, the lights went out, and that's when the story really gets interesting because that's where they find Shirley. Apparently, she'd been missing for five weeks, and there was a huge search. Um, and in fact, the lake was dragged because that was where she was last seen, and there was nobody found in the lake. And then someone noticed that two of the colored lights in the fountain were burned out. So at night, the, the, the lights weren't all working. And so an electrical crew was dispatched to fix the lights and to see what had happened. And that's when they found the body of a woman lay, lying face down in the fountain had a small well inside it, the top of the fountain. And there was about two feet of water there in the well. And her body was found there lying face down. And it was incredibly mysterious how she'd got there or what she was doing there or how someone could have died in that place and in that position in the middle of Druid Park Lake with, you know, with nobody knowing, no one seeing her body getting there or noticing anything strange that evening. So for a body to be found there and, and for no one to notice until the lights were out is, is a, you know, a very strange, again, almost supernatural phenomenon. So I got to remind folks, the time is 1969. You said that uh, this guy she was dating was initially a suspect. Why did they rule him out? First of all, you you referred to it as a murder, and it wasn't actually classed as a murder. And because it was never solved, it was actually classed as an unexplained death, an unsolved death. But a lot of people think it had to have been a murder. So the main suspect was a man named Arno West. And um, like I said, he was her boyfriend and she was actually supporting him financially. So the night that she disappeared, she'd gone to meet some friends at a bar on Pennsylvania Avenue. And she was very fashionably dressed in boots. And it was a hot night. And um, during the evening at the bar, she learned that Arno had used her paycheck to buy a pantsuit for another lady. So, of course, she was terribly upset. She stormed out of the bar and she went to West's house. And neighbors said that they heard this couple arguing on the porch very loud. And so, obviously, you know, there was dissent and aggression between the two that evening, which already makes it very suspicious. So they seem to have cooled off. Friends said that they went to another bar and then they went to see some friends and it was a very hot night. They went for a drive to cool off. And this is where it gets very suspicious. Shirley Arno says, Shirley asked him to drop her off near the lake at Druid Hill Park. And he said he saw her climbing over the fence around the lake 
which at the time was apparently a 15 feet high fence. And I believe it had spikes on the top. So again, it's very hard to imagine this woman climbing over the fence in the middle of the night. Arno says he returned, spoke to her through the fence, tried to persuade her not to go in the lake because she was very upset, perhaps suicidal. He handed her her purse over the railings. And that was the last time she was ever seen. And then later that week, Arno West said that he saw her purse still hanging from the railings. And at that point, he called the police. And that's when the search began. I mean, like I said, she was not the kind of person to leave home with no explanation. And there were national sightings. People said she'd been seen in California and a Baltimore medium said that she'd contacted her on the in the other world and promised she'd soon have an answer. But everyone was baffled by the lack of clues. And like I said, even the lake was dragged, but no body was found. As you said, this was um, kind of a time of racial tension. And it was interesting how this, you know, this case obviously got a lot of attention because it was so bizarre. But it was much. It was reported much more in the Afro American than in the Baltimore Sun. Did report about the case, but not as intensely. Didn't follow it in the same way that the Afro American did. And in fact, I think that the case was investigated less closely, and in the end, kind of dismissed because she was an African American woman. Since this thing has has kind of gone its course. There has been another book uh, written about the quote, The Lady in the Lake. Bring us up to speed on where we are. First of all, let me tell you about the, the coroner's verdict. Um, so the body was too decomposed for anyone to determine the, the cause of death, but they managed to rule out several causes. So she wasn't strangled. She wasn't stabbed. She hadn't used any drugs that evening. There were no gunshot wounds. And if there were signs of foul play, They'd been washed away because the body had been there so long. So the actual verdict was death by hypothermia. And it's possible that she was drowned before she was in the fountain, but she couldn't have drowned in the fountain because there was so little water in there. She was very upset when she went missing. So there is a possibility of suicide. But she was a very strong swimmer. And in fact, she won awards for swimming in the past. So it's possible that she tried to drown herself, found it more difficult than she'd anticipated, made her way to the fountain, tried to signal for help. But if that happened, why didn't anyone hear her shouting, you know, and if she changed her mind about suicide, why not just swim back? It's hard to believe someone would commit suicide by sitting in the middle of a fountain. Another possibility is that she was drowned or knocked unconscious by Arno West, and then he hid the body in the fountain, but it showed no signs of trauma. And how would he drag the body of a 100-pound woman dressed in her coat and boots across the lake and then pull her body up the 20-foot ladder at the side of the fountain? Another possibility is that Arno harmed her, put her in the lake unconscious, left her for dead. And then she came around in the water, but she was very weak and she made it to the fountain, but then she passed out before she could ask for help. 
Some people said that they saw a rowing boat on the lake that night. Some people say they saw Arno West looking through a pair of binoculars at the lake. He failed a lie detector test, but nevertheless, he was released without charge because they couldn't prove any crime had been committed. And as you mentioned, um, Laura Lippman had a book called The Lady of the Lake that is partly about this case, but it com- contrasts it with a case of a 11-year-old white girl who went missing at the same time and contrasts how much attention the crime with the white girl got compared to Shirley's case. And But it fictionalizes the case. Um, and apparently that's um, that book has been made into a TV series that's coming out soon. So we'll see more attention to this case. And it would be great if you know, if people started reinvestigating it and the case was opened again. I mean, I think that would be fascinating. Well, let me just tell you, that is just one of many untold stories here in Baltimore City. And uh, many of them have been passed along to me. And, um, and, and it will be fascinating to see if others decide to take up the case and literally, you know, try and answer some of the questions that you've already posed to us as to the how and the why. The last part of this, uh, uh, Makita, I want to ask you about is this idea that sometimes stories like this are, I mean, we've had stories like this, obviously, you know, with um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and and other famous writers who've tried to to look at things that may seem out of the ordinary. Is there anything in particular that kind of intrigues you about this story? Well, I yes, there is. And I really am interested in true crime cases, but particularly those, like, when you investigate further, they kind of open up cracks in the surface of things, and they tend to highlight things that are not necessarily to do with the crime, but things that have been overlooked, like, for example, the racism in the newspaper reporting, insight into people's lives, how people remember things very differently. And then also just, you know, the the life of the time, the Sphinx Club, the fashion, the style, the nightlife, all of those things are highlighted by this case. And the crime is like a crack in the surface that allows us to go into it and see, get a new perspective on all those other things that are fascinating too. I hope you go back and, and revisit some of this. Uh, I know you will as the series uh, comes on the air, uh, but why don't you let folks know where they can find your work uh, and um, how they may want to reach out to you? Well, the best the best way is to go to my website. It's just my name, MakitaBrotman.com. And uh, there's I've written books about some other unsolved mysteries, so they can check out those books. And my email address is on there, so they can send me an email if they want to get in touch. Let's hope we get an answer to some of those questions. Thank you, Makita, for joining us here on Future City. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Makita Brotman. We also want to let you know they finished making a miniseries about the Lady in the Lake in Baltimore, which features actress Natalie Portman. What excites us here at Future City is the casting of Moses Ingram as Shirley Parker. Ingram, whose real name is Monique Denise Ingram, grew up in Baltimore. The series is expected to appear on Apple TV Plus by the end of the year. 
I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. Black October struck fear in Baltimore's underground drug pushers of heroin in the mid-70s. There were spray-painted signs across the city urging death to drug dealers. Things got real when a member of the House of Delegates was murdered in his apartment complex garage. Get ready to hear a riveting tale when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. I've known about Black October for almost 50 years. It was different. So-called black vigilantes meeting out vengeance to black drug dealers. It was in your face with spray paint announcing the coming purge. There is a book about Black October, which is told from the perspective of the Baltimore Police Department. For me, this was a whitewash and didn't capture the African-American sentiment of the time. So I went to a friend, William Bill Roden, who wrote about this area. So long before he was a famous sports writer, Bill Roden actually worked in Baltimore, and he had to cover a beat about a story that we're going to be talking about called Black October. Uh, Bill, let's begin with this. Uh, How would you describe what Black October was? (laughs) Yeah, Black October, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what Black October was and is. And to my knowledge, um, and again, I really had to scrape the cobwebs off because this is when I was like 23 years old, man. And that was like, uh, this is now, we're now 50 years later. You know, I just celebrated uh, my 73rd birthday in September. So when you talk about me as a budding journalist in 23, I'm like, wow, man. And then Black October, uh, I was always, you know, um, it was a group. And I'm not sure if we ever got to the bottom of who was the leadership of Black October. Um, I always wondered, even at the time, because this was all about when Turk Scott was murdered. And we'll talk about that later, which was stunning. Uh, The drug epidemic in Baltimore at that time, it was beyond an epidemic. I don't know what's beyond an epidemic, but it was terrible. But I didn't know whether Scott, you know, he had just been indicted uh, on importing, bringing kilos of heroin, which was stunning. And so I was wondering, well, was this, quote unquote, this group called Black October, or was it actually like a, a, a mob hit, you know, because it was a mob hit design to frame up this group called Black October uh, because, you know, he'd been indicted and there was always a possibility that he was going to spill the beans on whatever that network was. So, and maybe that was a journalism cynicism in me even then, that was this what we were being told or was this a setup? Because uh, I never met anybody involved in Black October. I mean, ever, not to this day. <laughs> I never, I never know who the hell is Black October. What is Black October? So when you ask me who was Black October, I say I still don't know who Black October <laughs> is. <laughs> I didn't know then. I don't know now. Well, I can tell you uh, as a youngster uh, growing up in Baltimore, um, one of the first people they arrested was uh, the Reverend Vernon Dobson's son. Yeah, 
And his other son was a classmate of mine in high school. And it was very political. And Baltimore had been political for a long time. And there was this kind of narrative that went out that a bunch of black vets who came back from Vietnam came and saw the, the scourge of the heroin epidemic. And they decided they were going to do something about it. And and you're right. There's, I mean, trying to, to find Black October was really, really difficult. Uh, and I think the death of Turk Scott kind of galvanized. This is more than just a bunch of signs. Because I can tell you, I woke up one morning and literally all across the city, somebody had spray painted Black October, death to drug dealers. And that was a clear sign that there was something happening that most people didn't even understand. Yeah. And again, I remember that. You know, I remember the spray painting and and the Black October. And I think this was also, you know, around the same time you had the Civilese uh, Liberation Army. And this was uh, kind of uh, the Black Power movement was, I don't know if you call it waning, but it was sort of in that air. So, but it still did not diminish my cynicism about whether Black October, I mean, obviously the goals, the stated goals of this group to wipe out drug dealers, you know, was, was great. I don't know how much of it was aspirational. Um, but again, I was wondering then, you know, we took focus on power. Who had the power to actually pull all this off? Um, and, you know, with Turk Scott, you know, I was with the Afro-American newspaper at the time, and Turk Scott was a friend of the paper. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know our editor, Ms. Elizabeth Oliver. That's, you know, Turk Scott was just a great source. You know, he fed us a lot of stuff. And so that that's what made his murder um, uh, so uh, stunning, that somebody like that would be taken out. A, stunning that he got indicted. Stunning that he would be murdered. And I remember the garage. And almost to this day, every time talking I talking about there, Sutton Place, yeah, Sutton Place, which was like a a, a ritzy kind of high to do yeah. uh, apartment complex. Yeah, and so I remember ever since then, even now, whenever I go into like a one of those kind of garages, I'm always looking around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah, but it was, uh, and I think my story, the story I wrote, was about uh, Hattie Harrison, mm -hmm. uh, who was. Um, elected to take uh, Turk Scott's place as a delegate. So, um, and again, you mentioned me being a sports writer. I really did not become, I mean, my first job at the Afro, I did everything but sports. I covered like stuff like this, the murders, I covered City Hall, I covered Department of Education, the Board of Estimate. I really did everything uh, but sports. I think I may have written a couple sports pieces with Sam, Lake, the great Sam Lacey, uh, edited. But more than that, I was really learning how to be a a, a journalist, uh, you know, covering, um, you know, covering the workings of cities. But yeah, this was a, uh, uh, it was a huge story. But like I said, when you first asked me about that, the identity of Black October to this day still remains a mystery to me, which I guess is credit to them if if, if in fact they really existed. Let me ask you this, because a lot of times the Afro tackled stories that mainstream publications would go, 
not interested or didn't see why it resonated with the Black community. Can you put a, a, a point on why it resonated with the African-American community, specifically in Baltimore? Well, I think that the reason the Turk Scott and October 17th, uh, I mean, uh, Black October resonated uh, was because, remember, we are still in this era of Black empowerment and trying to take take uh, control of our communities. And at that time, you know, drugs were ravaging uh, the Black community. Drugs were ravaging East Baltimore, you know, as we would later learn from The Wire, which I think you were pointing out kind of emerged from this. So any story, and I covered a lot of them, there were a lot of stories that the white press, and, and eventually I would come back to Baltimore, work with the Baltimore Sun, but for many people, uh, you know, the black community was invisible, you know, unless unless we, you know, murdered somebody or got caught stealing, but, you know, we didn't have weddings, we didn't have babies, um, you know, we didn't have real lives. Uh, so I think something like this, a, a group that uh, professed to want to run out black dealer, black, black drug dealers, and then of course the murder of Tur Turk Scott uh, was uh, it, it really resonated in our community because he was a part of that community. I mean, he really, you know, he had a, a, a huge presence in the black community, and it's something that we cared about and. That was the point of the black community. I mean, when I left the uh, Avro, I went to work at Ebony, and it was the same thing, you know, at that time that uh, we covered the black community because, you know, the white, the mainstream press only cared about us to the extent that we were threats, not to the extent that we were living, breathing human beings. And that's why, and, and I would carry that with me, even when I went to the Baltimore Sun and to the New York Times, and even now uh, when I'm at uh, ESPN and Anscape, I always carry the Black press, the, the spirit of the Black press with me, uh, because, you know, whether it's Black October, Turk Scott, you know, Willie Mays, or Jesse Owen, you know, <laughs> that's something that we cared about. We cared about the flesh and blood of our community. And and frankly, back then, the white press really did not, you know, we didn't really did not matter. I want to get out of here on this, Bill. Uh, what has this taught you about what you do today, if you will? That's a good question. Uh, kind of follow the truth where it leads. Like I said, I have a healthy cynicism. Um, and, and again, I think that what it, what, not only that story, Charles, but this is my experience at the Afro. My experience, you know, I went to Morgan State, you know, uh, and then worked at the Afro with Sam and had some great editors, uh, you know, at, at the editor, with, you know, at the Afro with Frankie Murphy and uh, Elizabeth Moss and, and Elizabeth Oliver. I guess it just really taught me any, about anything else, the value of the Black press, you know, and why we were needed and continue to be needed to tell our stories. You know, whether it was Turk Scott or Black October or uh, the Sykesville monster. Uh, I, I, won't, 
I sort of remember that one. <laughs> Thanks, Bill Monson. I, I won't go any further. <laughs> I won't go any further than that. But, look, there are tons of untold stories, uh, not just in in Maryland, but across the country, that <laughs> that need light shined them. Right. Yeah. And that that's our role as a black press. And uh, it was a, a great experience for me to be there. And um, even this strolled down memory lane about Black October, I'd forgotten about it. You know, I forgot about it. And Well, and, I loved reading your bylines. I was like, oh, good. He was good back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I was learning. Yeah, I was, I was learning. But, um, yeah, no, but it was, it was uh, great. And uh, like I said, I'm looking forward to seeing it because I still, <laughs> to this day, of 20, in November of 2023, Wondering who the hell Black October? <laughs> well, I never was one person who was involved in Black. And even when I was looking at the the backstory, I'm like, this had to be a setup, you know? This had to be a, a way of silencing Turk Scott because there were some other, a couple other people who were killed, right? That that Black yes, October. They, I think there were three others that were killed down the road, and 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 it's always kind of and and, and Bill, I I don't profess to be the end all to be all but i know like there is a book out called black october a friend of mine wrote the book but he interviewed a black detective or no a white detective and a black cop and i had to explain to him that's not the that's not the story that was in the black community that was i'm going to tell you what you should know well you know good i'm, I'm you know thank you for jogging my memory on this and um and also those very important days at the Afro, because that's sort of where I got my uh, my bachelor's, <laughs> bachelor's degree, uh, and headed toward a master's in journalism. You know, I, I guess I got my my master's at the at, at Ebony, and then would work on my doctorate at the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times. Um, but that Afro experience with you know with Elizabeth Oliver. I mean, Elizabeth Oliver wrote some of the big stories on Turk Scott, uh, because he was a big contact for the Afro, and she knew him well, and, uh, you know, she was a tough editor. But, yeah, those were great days. That was a heck of a story. And like I said, I'm still, I still have questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not other than uh, William Roden, otherwise known as Bill Roden. He writes for uh, the New York Times. Guess what? He's not writing many more murder stories, but he's writing a lot of great stories about sports. And if you get a chance, please make sure you read them. Tell them where they can find you. Uh, well, Bill, right now, yeah, I, I, I worked at the New York Times for 34 years, but currently I work at an ES, a great ESPN site called Anscape, A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E, Anscape. And I've worked there. We used to be called The Undefeated, uh, but I've worked there since 20. Uh, 17, 2016, I think. I uh, just celebrates seven years. So the show goes on, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Bill, for, for taking the time to be with us on Future City. Thank you. Thanks, Bill Roden. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City. We often look around our region and are amazed at the many untold stories that find traction with national and international audiences. The stories shared on this show have been around. What makes them different is someone put fresh eyes on the investigation 
or an anomaly. Platforms such as the Serial Podcast question the known facts and the Adnan Syed murder conviction. Though the case is still tied up in court, it was non-professional investigators who took on the cause. It takes time and effort to clarify what's important and its impact to these unknown stories. You are welcome to try your investigative skills. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bright. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about them by visiting wypr.org and search for Future City. I want to thank the Afro-American Newspaper Archives who provided us with materials for the Black October segment. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robbins. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.